Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. All right. Well, we've been in a series now for, and this is our last installment on a a topic called Natural Faith. And today's uh, topic title is Natural is In. Now, uh, please don't mistake, I'm not trying in this series of the branding to make any statements one way or another scientifically about organic or natural or non-GMO or GMO or anything like that. I, I have no scientific ability to do that. But you have to admit, natural is in, it's all the rage. And in regard to faith, I think it's a really helpful concept for us. But today, before we jump into our message, I wanted to share with you a story. I was emailed this last week and have permission to share this anonymously. Um, a story of a young woman in our congregation who's been wrestling, has been going through this series with what natural faith is. And I just wanted to share that with you. I just slightly edited it to shorten it just a hair, but it, it meant a lot to me and brought my wife to tears, so who knows what it'll do to you. So just be prepared. Here we go. This is what she said. She said, after listening to this week's awesome message, thank you, Jeremy, and looking at the current title of your series, I couldn't sleep until I sent this email, natural faith. What does it mean? To me, it's looking at just how natural or completely innocent our faith can be. I have two great examples of this from my own life. She goes on to say, Last winter, my three-year-old was in the kitchen when I suddenly heard him start yelling. This was the kind of yelling that made me run quickly to see what was wrong. When I got there, he shouted, I'm so mad. I'm just so mad, Mom. And she goes on to say, I looked around to see what was the cause but couldn't figure it out. So I asked, What are you mad at? To which his answer was, Mom, it's snowing again. Text Jesus and tell him to stop making it snow. I want to play outside today. Isn't that cute? She says, I was so taken aback by his complete and natural faith that my little boy had not only in my ability to text Jesus and tell him to make the snow stop, but also in his belief that Jesus could control all things in his life. She goes on to say, my second example is my mom, who was diagnosed with breast cancer in July of 2008 at the age of 50. She had surgery and chemo, and in February we had a party celebrating her clean bill of health. But our joy uh, was soon brought to a halt when she started having seizures, and the diagnosis was a new kind of cancer with a life expectancy less than two years. She goes on to say, after another surgery, things started going downhill. My mother was an avid walker, often walking up to 10 miles a day. Her incision got infected. Her port got infected. She lost all muscle control in her left arm. The steroids were making her gain weight and made her not sleep, and the list could go on. On July 29th, 2013, she says, my mom lost her battle with cancer. I was attending a church camp with my grandparents to tell them my mom had taken a bad turn, and we weren't sure if she was going to make it. The congregation quickly joined around, and we prayed for my mother. We aren't exactly sure what time my mom died, but the nurse's best guess of when she died was when we were at church praying for her. She says, the next week passed in a blur. I scanned pictures, put together a slideshow. I cried, just as I'm doing now, she writes, as writing this email. And as I was looking through my mother's things, I found this written in the front of her Bible. It read, I know by faith in what I believe. I know God's free will I have received. I know he will keep me to the end, my Savior, my Redeemer, and my friend. She goes on to write, Wow, what an awesome testament of faith. 
My mom was the prettiest, healthiest, best grandparent out there. Had her life completely taken from her, not able to be the grandparent she wanted to be. Not only had she lost her left arm, but lost most of the movement in her left leg as well. She was wheelchair bound. And I know she cried about what she would be missing as I cry now, seeing my sons hit milestones their grandmother will never celebrate with them. But she goes on, I'm constantly taken back to the handwritten note in her Bible. Even through all the suffering she went through, she still believed. She had a faith that could not be shaken, a natural faith. As I write this, I have had many long Bible-based discussions with my mentor about why this is so hard. If my toddler can believe at such a young age, and my mom in her greatest time of suffering can believe, why am I left here to question why my mom Why someone who loved God so much she volunteered to take the toddler class every year at church camp? Why the woman who would drive five hours to stay in a hotel room across from me because I was in a wedding and I couldn't leave my infant? Why the woman who was spreading his word to her family and friends? And it was because they both have natural faith, one that just is, one that doesn't question. It just is. I'm struggling, she goes on to write. As time passes, I'm beginning to question less and just trying to believe with the passion that my own mother showed me, but it's not easy to do when she isn't here to guide me through this hard time. So why this really long email? I just wanted to share my story because I think of natural faith and I look to those around me as inspiration. It comes completely natural for my son. He doesn't question like I do. He just believes that I can text Jesus and make it stop snowing. It just came naturally for my mother. And after her initial anger, she just believed God would not forsake her but keep her to the end. Natural faith. I'm praying that one day I will have natural faith like my son and like my mother, one that doesn't question or doubt but just believes. And I would submit to you that unlike she, what she said that of two examples, I would submit to you that there's three examples of natural faith in action in this story. I mean, there's the story of the, there's a natural faith of the childlike expectation and trust in a parent and in God. And there's the story of a kind of faith that is so embedded in relationship in us that it it, it carries us through the difficult times, not just the easy good times. And I think this mother is an amazing example of natural faith because natural faith isn't about not having questions. It isn't about having all your feelings always be right. It's about being real with your questions. It's about being honest and and pursuing God and connecting with God even in the midst of those questions. So I just wanted to share that with you because I just thought it was so beautiful and so inspiring. So today, as we finish this series, we started it. Um, distilling natural faith down to the idea of being a disciple, one who is like the master. And and we looked at the very first message at at, at a scripture where Jesus leans into his disciples a few moments before he goes to the cross and is arrested and he leans in and he says, here, I want you to pay attention to this. If you don't get anything else, get this. And he says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. We talked about the fact that's not new. Jesus has been talking about that the whole time. But he goes on to give us the definition of a disciple, a, a one who is becoming like their master in every way when he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another like I loved you. 
See, as we conclude our, our series today, we're going to deal with a struggle I think we all face in faith that makes us look to artificial sweeteners because the topic we're going to talk about today is difficult and it sours many of our lives and we don't understand it. And so we look for artificial things rather than just really understanding it and enjoying the real and natural beauty of it. The topic we're going to talk about today is the idea of being in or out, insiders or outsiders, the idea of judgment and what place it has in our lives and how it works in that. Now, this whole topic isn't unique to faith at all. I mean, I remember my toddlers having birthday parties and having a bunch of people over when they were, when they were toddlers, and I remember them dividing up into the groups right away. Boys were in, girls were out, or some people were in and some people were out, and somebody was left crying, and we spent half the party trying to console them and trying to teach them to play together and not exclude people, right? We all experience this. We've experienced that on the playgrounds growing up. You remember the moments when you were picked first, and you remember the moments when you were picked last or you weren't picked at all, right? There's this in and out thing we struggle with all all throughout life. And that doesn't really happen much anymore for us as kids today because we don't have time to do pickup games. We have all of our kids instead trying out for rec teams and trying out for club teams. And so we've given the adults the role of picking. And we know as parents how good that makes us feel when our kids don't get picked, right? It just is the best feeling in the world. Okay, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, okay? When our kids aren't picked, right? You've also felt it when you weren't picked for a promotion that you felt like you deserved and you earned and you wanted and you were hoping for. You felt like it when you were let go from a job or from a position and you felt like it when you were excluded from a meeting that you felt like you had input to give and you weren't even allowed to be in the room and you felt like you should be, right? We all understand what this in and out thing feels. And I think it's, uh, I've been enjoying watching off of Amazon Prime streaming a miniseries on John Adams' life recently. And, and, and there's so many amazing things in the story of his life that describe this whole in and out feeling. And uh, if, you, if you may recall, John Adams was our first vice president under our first president, George Washington. He was friends with Jefferson. He had a major role in the Declaration of Independence and the whole Revolutionary War as a leader. And, but for much of Washington's presidency, Adams was completely excluded from any of the cabinet meetings was not even allowed to have input into any of the decisions. And at one point, while Adams was the vice president, he made a comment. He said he felt like the vice presidency position was the most useless position in the entire government, and he regretted the fact that he even accepted the position at times. And there's this one scene that the movie captures so really so so well. Washington, he's sitting in a meeting with all the cabinet members, uh, just having dinner. And Washington looks over to him and said, "John, you need to leave because we're going to have a cabinet meeting." And you see him get up, and he just winces, and he looks down, and he walks out outside the door. And this is the scene of the door closing behind him. And we've all been there, right? When, when the, the life was sucked out of us, the, the importance was sucked out of us, uh, just our, our chest caving in, our eyes downcast, not knowing what to do because we are on the outside. It makes you feel horrible, doesn't it, to be on the outside? And that feeling gets in the way when we deal with the idea of judgment and in and out in our faith a lot of times. We end up starting to struggle with this and it takes the air out of our sail and makes us feel judged or we've seen other people judged and it hurts and we even get disgusted by it because a lot of us have been taught that the Bible teaches that you are not to judge one another. 
So all this insider-outsider stuff that we deal with makes us want to, even if we don't physically, it makes us want to stay, keep a little bit of distance from the church. And, and maybe it's been a barrier in our growth in faith. Today, we're going to try to navigate through some of the big picture of how the Bible talks about this idea of judgment and being in and out. With the goal of helping us not only understand it, but also get to the place where we can live free to relate to others like Jesus loves others as well. And I'm going to, I'll be honest, this point may may touch on some pain points for many of you because you've experienced being rejected by church in your past or by faith, people of faith. And if that, if this is a struggle point for you, I want to, I want to encourage you to take really good notes and take some time to ponder those notes and reflect on them this week from this message. But I also want you to think about going back to the series we did last fall and the relationship above series, the different series we did starting on October 20th. There's three successive messages that will deal with issues that we're not going to be able to address and that may elicit questions that you can go back to and listen to that series and hear the answers or hear some ways to think about that. The reality... <coughs> pardon me. I had this problem first service too. Maybe it's too much pumpkin pie for breakfast. <coughs> I was serious about that. I actually had pumpkin pie and ice cream for breakfast this morning. It's my weakness in the fall. We cannot eliminate any sense of in and out and judgment from faith in life. It's just not a reality, right? In fact, Jesus even talks about judgment, and he talks about it rather pointedly. One of the most pointed examples is in Matthew 25. Jesus shares three stories in Matthew 25, and each story he concludes with a statement of judgment of in and out. The first story, he ends with the statement, I don't know you, this very relational outside judgment statement. The second story, if we were to just summarize it, he basically says, you say you know me, but you ignore me, so you're really on the outside of things. You're left out. And the third one, it gets even more pleasant. He says, you're going to be thrown into into eternal punishment where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds really fun, doesn't it? Jesus is really pointed about it. And it's important for us to understand this concept of judgment in the Bible because if we don't understand it, we will be tempted to either throw out part of the Bible and mistrust the Bible because the only way we can rectify how to live well is to not deal with some of the passages in the Bible or, on the other hand, we'll be if we don't understand how this topic well, we will become like the Pharisees who are very judgmental and the people that Jesus opposed the most in life. So allow me to walk you through this using a big, using a big picture outline of looking at the topic of judgment through three lenses. The lens of humanity, the lens of Jesus, and the lens of church. How we live this out as a church. Let's pause for a second and just pray because this is a, this is an emotional topic for some of us. So Lord, we just ask that your presence would be with us right now. And we know you are. So I say that confidently, that you are here and that you're going to order our thoughts, you're going to order our emotions, you're going to help us find a clearer understanding of how uh, you think about this and how we should think about this and how it can bring freedom and beauty to our lives, even in this difficult topic. So Lord, just come be with us now by your Holy Spirit. Amen. So the lens of humanity, and we're going to talk about this from the standpoint of natural is in. The Bible talks about the fact that all of humanity is naturally intended to be completely in with God because we're created in the image of God. 
And in spite of sin, no matter what damage sin has or has not done to you, no matter what extent of sin you're caught into, that image of God is still there. Something beautiful, something God is wanting to draw on and something that deserves to be honored no matter who you are in life. But we deal with the judgment question when it comes to relationships so often. We deal with the question, how do we respond to people who are different from us, whose morality and behavior makes us uncomfortable, maybe even repels us? You see, when we integrate at least into our thinking and emotions and our actions that all of humanity is made in the image of God, it changes the way we talk, the way we react the way we relate to one another. For example, if you are opposed to President Obama, if you see him as created in the image of God, how is that going to change your tone towards him? If you were opposed to President Bush, if you see him as created in the image of God, how should that change your tone in relating and talking about him? See, natural, from creation... We are all in. And that's where we need to start. And if we start there, it changes the way we treat people, even with people we disagree with strongly. Second, the lens of Jesus. We're going to talk about this as naturally, as inclusively invited in. Now, before we can understand Jesus' statements on judgment and how he teaches about it, we have to start by understanding how radically inclusive Jesus is. And today we're going to do that by looking at a scripture that for many of you, when you've read it, is probably very confusing because you have no frame of reference to relate to this. It doesn't make sense in your world. You've never done this. It's actually a passage out of Hebrews. And Hebrews is this uh, amazing argument, an amazing look at how the church so early on could become powerfully... Uh, poorly exclusive of other people. Now, so if you're here today and you're not convinced about Jesus, let me talk to you for just a second. You're going to be interested in what I'm about to say because you're going to get a really good picture of what the church should and can be. And you're probably going to say a few times, yeah, that's what I've said all along. So stay with me if you're not a Christian on this. Uh, Context. The writer of the Hebrews is talking to Jewish Christians who are making it hard for Gentiles to join them because they don't dress right, because they don't act right, because they don't worship in the same way. They like do the same actions of worship. They don't have the same behaviors, the same rituals. They're not cleaned up enough in their character. And the writer describes uh, an illustration to address this. He, he actually describes the Jewish temple worship and how that actually illustrates, oddly enough, the divides of in and out. Now, if we look at this on the screen, the first court that, where most of the worship happened is actually the court of the Gentiles. If, if you were or a court of the Israelites, if you were a Gentile you weren't, and who believed in the Jewish God, you weren't even allowed there. You had to be a Jew. And that's where most of the worship happened, just inside from the cafe and the bookstores, just around the corner from that. And that's where most of the worship stuff happened that was corporate done. But that didn't stop there. Further in, there was the court of women. So you could go there if you're a woman, and further in from that was the court of men. And you could go there if you're a man, but you couldn't go there if you couldn't go there if you were a woman. It's just this amazing illustration and exclusivity. You are either in or you're out. You go further into the temple from there, and that's the court of the priests. And you had to be born into the the Levitical tribe and the priests to be able to go into that court. And that doesn't even stop there. You go a little bit further, and you've got the holy place. The only people who could go into the holy place are the priests who were of the line of Aaron. 
And then you go further from that and you've got the Holy of Holies. And the only person who could go there is the high priest, born of the line of Aaron, and he could only go there one time a year. And to go there, he had to go through all these rituals, these rituals of washing and sacrifices and all these prayers that he had to say to go in. And they were so nervous because in the most, the Holy of Holies, God's presence was so strong that they believed and understood that if they went in there and went in there imperfectly, that you would die unless you did all this stuff well. In fact, they were so afraid of it that they had a habit of tying a rope around the high priest's ankles so that if he went in there and he didn't do everything right and he died, they could pull him out without going in there. Now, that's a great invitation to church. Come to church to see if the pastor dies in the presence of God and watch them drag his body, bumping out by a rope, dragging his leg across the ground. I mean, that's just a great, really friendly thing, isn't it? It's just this amazing depiction of distance between God and man that sin creates. But here's the deal. If you are a Gentile, like most of us are, you and I are, even if you're believers in the Jewish God, you couldn't come any further than this. You are here, way on the outside, on the other side of the cafe and the bookstore, out close to the street. For some of you, when you've attended church, you've had that experience of you are here and you felt that way. Oh, maybe nobody bounced you out of the worship service. Maybe nobody physically rejected you in some way. But you felt far outside the community of God emotionally. And here's the truth about in and out It's a whole lot worse of a feeling to be emotionally on the outside than it is to be excluded physically, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to not be invited to a party. It's another thing to be invited to a party and show up and feel like you don't belong, right? Have you ever felt that? I mean, there could be a million reasons why you felt that. Maybe maybe because the church didn't treat you well and they rejected you and they judged you. I don't know. Or maybe some of it might have been your own stuff. Maybe it was the, the distance you felt with God because of your own failures or your own shortcomings or your anger or your doubts with God's goodness. I don't know what it is. So you left church maybe on that day feeling emotionally an outsider out of sorts, maybe even cried. And that's a terrible place to be, isn't it? To feel that rejection. This is the same emotion the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at in this illustration that he writes about in Hebrews 9. But the amazing emotion of the readers that he's actually writing to wasn't the fact that they felt like they were on the outside. No, they understood something that we may not already already understand yet about this diagram, about this idea that Paul is giving us because what they knew is that Jesus Christ when he came was crucified on the cross that that veil separating us from that most holy place the place where God's presence was was completely torn in two and ripped apart and now every single one of us is invited in We are all inclusively invited in. And he talks about it this way in Hebrews 9. He says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, I love the relational language of family, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water confidence. I don't know about you, but when I think about faith, when I think about natural faith, it has to elicit this place of confidence 
in us. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that it's solid. It's, it's a faith that when we live it out, we walk with a sense of confidence. It's a faith that settles our guilty conscience and we no longer have to worry about that. It, it's a faith that brings this beauty and this purity to our life, this health to our life. And the point the writer is making is that everyone is inclusively invited into this place. You are invited to be here now. No exceptions. None at all. So by clear implication, how can we as followers of Jesus ever treat someone as though they might be excluded regardless of what they have done? Every person we walk by on the street, every person who acts like a jerk to us at work, every person who is rude or abusive or crude in our life has the same invitation to that place as you have. Even if you've accepted the invitation and they haven't, that invitation for them to be there is still hanging out there, not just hanging out there passively. It's pursuing them. God is pursuing them to be there. You see, when we understand this, The only choice we have in life, the only sin left uncovered by Jesus is our decision as to whether we accept the invitation or we we reject it. Jesus himself talks about this in the context of judgment in one of his most famous passages, most quoted passages in John 3. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, you are invited to be in as in can ever get. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but to save the world through Him. And you see, that's exactly what He did. He paid the price for every single sin shortcoming you or anyone else has ever committed in their life. Whether you've accepted that or not, it's already paid for you. He removed all of those in and out barriers that you struggle with in life because he took care of everything that happened in the rest of the temple and what he did. And he stands today inviting you right now, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, to be inclusively invited with him into the very center of his presence and his love for you. And then Jesus makes us face another fact. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see, God no longer condemns you. He's removed all your guilt. He's removed all your sin. He's removed all your shame. He loves you perfectly. It's your choice to accept the invitation sent with such great cost and great care to be in, or you can choose to condemn yourself by not accepting it. God isn't standing there condemning you. You may be condemning yourself, but He's not. The way is made for you to be in. So how does this affect the way we as the church live and think about judgment in and out? Let's look at the lens of the church. And I talk about this one in terms of natural is inclusively different. 
So Jesus defines followers of him, as we said, as his disciples. And in in one of his most famous phrases, the statements, the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, he says this. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now let's take a moment and let's examine the Great Commission from Paul's context, the Apostle Paul. Paul was commanded to go to people who were not like the Jews, who didn't know God, who were from different cultures, different religions, different values, different moral grids. And he was commanded to teach them to be disciples of Jesus, to live and love like Jesus loved. And Jesus himself even was a Jew, raised as a Jew, born as a Jew, ministered as a Jew to Jews. And here's the deal. Paul and the early church were outrageously successful at this, amazingly successful, so amazing that they conquered the greatest empire in all of history, maybe, in less than 300 years without ever raising a fight or a sword. They did it through some other way. But here's one of the other interesting things. When religion, Christianity, became accepted by the government in Rome, things changed. The Great Commission actually became corrupted to something more about power. In fact, I love the way Andy Stanley writes about it. He said the Great Commission, when Christianity was accepted by Rome, became more like this. Therefore, go and impose my teaching, my values, my worldview on all nations, threatening them with judgment and destruction if they don't obey everything I have commanded you. And seriously, isn't that what faith And church experience for too many people has been. I mean, we could think about tons of examples. One of the easiest, very broad culture examples is the religious right movement of the 80s and 90s. Going and thinking, we're going to take back our culture by taking back the government, by legislating laws, by protesting, by making our voice be heard. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with being involved in government and that stuff. That's good. We should be as people involved in all of that. But the church falls into arguing and protecting our rights rather than something far more effective that's actually the secret behind why the church was so amazing in the first 300 years. And Paul gives us that secret in First Corinthians 9, verse 19. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Now let's think about this. Paul's writing to Corinth. If you understand what Corinth was, uh, the church there by this time was probably a small church, probably 50, 100, 200, maybe a few more people than that, in a major metropolitan area. And Corinth was the kind of town that made Vegas look like a place that Puritans would love to go. It was just a really interesting, difficult city. And what does he say about them and how to be Jesus in their city? He doesn't say judge. He doesn't say protest. He doesn't say legislate. He doesn't say stay away from them because they might taint you, which is basically our version of passively rejecting them and making them on that outside. He doesn't say prove them wrong and prove yourself right. He doesn't say get angry at them and argue with them until they become convinced that you're right and they're wrong and they repent. No, he says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have rights. I know who I am. I make a deliberate choice. And what is that choice? 
It's a choice to be a slave to everyone. Think about that. What does a slave do? A slave lives in the culture, even if it's not their own culture, and becomes quite a part of the culture, even if it's not their own culture, right? A slave serves the master kindly, even if the master's unkind. A slave engages, anticipates, puts themselves in the way of those they are serving to be in relationship and be ready to be there with them at all times. And they aren't focused on their own rights. They're focused on serving the good of their master at all costs. Why does Paul relate to people this way and invite us to relate to people this way? He says, to win as many as possible. He says, I win them. I'm winsome. Have you ever won a contract? Have you ever won somebody's heart? How did you do that? Did you judge them and their product, or did you win them over to yours and how good yours was and how good your service was going to be them? Did you, did you hold them at a distance until they behaved the way you wanted, or did you seek ways to engage them positively right where they were at? You see, when we win someone's heart, we want them to want to be with us more than they want to be apart from us. This is how the West was won for Christ. Winsome engagement in culture. A culture that was frankly very hostile. Far more hostile to them than anything we experience in America today. It was service and friendship offered to those who are unlike them, even to those who were repulsive to them by their behavior. And that's different then our culture operates towards one another. In fact, that's even different than many of your church experiences and many of the churches operating today in America. That kind of Jesus, inclusive invitation to all kind of love, drives us to give up our preferences and our rights and our desires and leads us to engage in relationship and friendship with people even when it's not comfortable, even when it feels difficult or even dangerous to us. Okay, I can imagine some of you are thinking right now, but Ross, you pointed out earlier that, that, that Jesus still talks about judgment and also talks about how we shouldn't judge. So how are we as a church, as followers of Jesus, supposed to judge and when and what does that look like? Because so far, all you've said is basically inclusively include everybody, right? Well, here's the deal. If you don't really get in your heart what I've said already, then explaining when and how we judge so easily becomes corrupted. It becomes something that is so unlike Jesus and something that ends up unnecessarily uh, creating, uh, putting us at odds with our culture instead of living and loving like Jesus loved. See, the place of judging is best illustrated by two simple points. The first reality I think Jesus already covered in a sense for us in John 3. It's, it's this reality that at death or when Jesus returns... If you haven't accepted that invitation, if you haven't accepted him making the way for you to be in and that invitation, then you will be out. And that decision isn't based on your moral performance or lack of your moral performance. It's simply based upon your willingness to follow Jesus and be in relationship with him. You judge yourself for refusing the most amazing gift ever offered to you. And we, the church, we can't ever judge that. We can't know people's hearts in that way. That's only something God can do. The second example of how and when we judge, I think, comes from a very, well, it's kind of a weird, disgusting, uncomfortable illustration Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read it. 
He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And can we just all go, ooh? Here's the reality. Christians have a morality and pagans have a morality. Every single person on the planet has a morality, has a code of conduct by which they operate. And what Paul is saying here is that even the pagan Corinthian culture looked at this morality and went, ooh, that's gross. Now, just so you can have a little clarification, he's not talking about incest. There's actually a separate word that's used for incest. What he's talking about is a guy sleeping with his stepmom or a guy sleeping with his father's ex-wife or something like that. But even the Corinthian culture, remember, worse than Vegas culture, went, this is really weird and disgusting. And Paul goes on and says, and you are proud. So proud. This is not a one-time thing. This is not like a a temporary lapse of moral judgment out of sexual attraction that went on. This This is an ongoing thing. It goes on and says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? I love the word there, mourning and sadness. Not, not rejecting outrage. Tone is everything in the lessons about judgment. And you have, and shouldn't you have put this man out of fellowship who has been doing this? Judgment by the church. For my part, he goes on, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And one who is present with you in this way, I am, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul's basically saying, I haven't even met the guy and I've already passed judgment on him. So what's Paul teaching us here about lessons we can take away about proper judgment in our lives? First, he's saying we only judge those in the community of faith. Now, everybody here who's a follower of Jesus, a shudder just went through the room. I just felt that. We're going to come back to that shudder and that fear in a moment, try to relieve that and calm that just a moment. But let's just go with the statement for a minute. Paul is basically saying, this guy signed on to being a disciple of Jesus, and now his behavior is out of whack. And even the the non-followers of Jesus are mocking him as weird and outrageous and out of bounds. And the truth here is that sin, even sin that's forgiven, because we know it's already all been forgiven, even sin that's been forgiven has consequences. The Bible talks about the wages of sin or death. And we can isolate that to the fact that we all die. We all know that. But that, that's, not, that's not what it's really saying. That's not the primary thing it's saying. It's saying it, there's things that you've done in your life, you've started, that maybe initially felt good, maybe initially were interesting or fun, and, but they're sin. And, and over time, they've gone from fun to gray to dreary to maybe even painful. And they've become something that you have a hard time not doing. They, you've become a slave to them. It's caused death. And Paul's lesson here, as we, if we were to read more detailed some of the passages after this, is that sometimes the shortest way back to health and wholeness is for us to feel the full consequence of our sin, in a sense, to hit bottom. And that what he's trying to communicate here is that judgment is not judgment to send people to hell. It's judgment to help people feel that consequence so that they will turn and they'll be rescued, which is the intent of Christian 
judgment. So boundaries of judgment, Paul even sets more clear as we look later in verse 9. He writes this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he's referring to a letter we don't have. Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians. Only two of them survived for us to see today. So he said, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. And again, remember the Vegas culture he's talking to. Worse than Vegas culture. In that case, you would have to leave this world. Essentially, he's saying, don't be ridiculous. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. And here's the kicker, verse 12. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is none. Absolutely none of our business is the church to judge those outside of the church. He says, are you not to judge those inside? Another rhetorical question. The answer is yes, of course. God will judge those outside. And Paul is basically giving us the lesson. Engage in relationship with people outside the faith without judgment. Be winsome. Win their hearts. Make them want to be with you more than anybody else because of the way you love them, because of the way you are generous towards them, the way you are kind to them. Let them peek into your lives and the lives of your Christian friends and see that thing that wins them and wins their heart to to Christ and to you. Christ's power in you wins them. Lead with that. Don't judge their behavior. Okay, so I promise to come back to that shudder in the room, that very that, that, that thing about judging us as Christians and how we're supposed to judge each other in Christians as Christians and how and when. And that judge is one of those terrifying words to us. It's just it's just terrifying. But if you read if you read Acts 15 and you read the rest of First and Second Corinthians and you you read it with the idea of catching Paul's tone in terms of how to deal with people struggling with sexual purity or or the other behaviors mentioned in the previous verse that we look at, and then you look at Galatians 6, you quickly discover how patient, how gentle, and how slow to judgment Paul is, even with the followers of Christ. It's this picture of this amazingly patient process with people in process, this amazingly patient love of people in process. Judgment is reserved for sin that becomes proudly accepted and a clear affront to the witness of the church and not to the ongoing struggles we all face on a regular basis in the way we think of judgment. So we've talked about the lens of humanity The natural is in. Go ahead and come on up, worship team. God designed you to be in with Him from the beginning. He designed every single person to be in. The lens of Jesus, the natural, is inclusively inviting everyone in. Everybody, regardless of the acceptance of His gift, has been forgiven, has has been offered that invitation to have access to the very heart of the presence of God. And the lens of the church naturally is inclusively different. We love and include in our friendship and our relationships even the most heathen of people without judgment. And we patiently and with great tenderness judge only ourselves, the church, so that we will love like Jesus loved and we will pursue others like Jesus pursues us. Here's the invitation. 
if you're here today and you've never accepted that lordship of Jesus in your life, you've never made the decision to accept that invitation, he's inviting you to the most favored position in his life. That's the invitation to you. You just have to repent of your sin and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and I'm going to be a disciple of you. And you are accepted into that place. You can do that today if you haven't make that decision today. And, and I think for all of us, isn't it an amazing concept to think, if we can throw up the next slide, that you are here? To really believe that? How does that change the way we worship? How does that, the way, how does that change the way we expect God to answer our prayers? How does that change the way we expect God to bless our day today and tomorrow and the next day? And he, He says we get to come into the very center of His presence. And I want to invite you to just, by faith, now as we continue to worship, enter that place with Him. He's here. He's already here. Let Him come to you. I don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe you'll send something. Maybe you won't. But, but just by faith. Seize that promise and seize that invitation. Lord, we ask that your presence would just rest upon us now. We know you're here, and it's funny to ask for that because we know you're already here with us. And we thank you for being here with us throughout this whole service. But, Lord, I pray that right now as we, as we worship that there would be uh, encounters and a special sense of your presence that we would find the reality of this encouragement in your presence right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come show yourself among us right now. In Jesus' name. Just continue to worship. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.